The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the Stoke Jew Podcast, where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. Today's reading is from Marcus Aurelius Meditations, Book 2, Chapter 4, which we read a long time ago in this series, uh, before it was even a podcast, and I don't even remember what I said, so time to re-examine it. Aurelius writes, Remember how long you have been putting off these things, and how many times God has given you days of opportunity, and yet you do not use them. Now it is high time to perceive the kind of universe of which you are a part, and the nature of the governor of the universe from whom you subsist as an effluence, and that the term of your time is circumscribed, and that unless you use it to attain calm of mind, time will be gone, and you will be gone, and the opportunity to use it will not be yours again. So why did I choose this uh, this reading? I mean, it's talking about themes that we've talked about before, about mortality and uh, finitude and all that other good stuff. So I mentioned, I think, in the last episode that I had been reading this fantastic book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. And what makes, I forgot how much I explained in the last podcast episode, but I'll, I'll say it again just in case you're just listening to this one. If I say time management book, what do you think of? So most time management books show you how to squeeze as much productivity into your day as possible. But the premise of this book is that A, that's impossible, and B, even if you to the extent to which you succeed, you will fail. In other words, all that's going to happen if you achieve peak productivity is you're going to feel like you have to take on more stuff or that that there's a way to get even to squeeze even more time out of your day and then it's just going to endlessly uh, keep on uh, escalating, you know, and you will not be able to have a life where you are present or whether you enjoy things. Uh, you're just going to try to uh, to to ramp up the grind. Okay. So I want to read you a passage that is on page 117, and this actually, I was going to include this in the previous episode, uh, but I realized it was a different idea, okay? And this really dovetails with what Marcus really says. He says, so Berkman writes, in much of this book so far, I've emphasized the importance of confronting rather than avoiding the uncomfortable reality about how little time we have. But it should also be becoming clear that there's something suspect about the idea of time as a thing we have in the first place. As the writer David Kane points out, we never have time in the same sense that we have cash in our wallets or the shoes on our feet. When we claim that we have time, what we really mean is that we expect it. We assume that we have three hours or three days to do something, Kane writes, but it never actually comes into our possession. Any number of factors could confound your expectations, robbing you of the three hours you thought you had in which to complete an important work project. Your boss could interrupt with an urgent request. The tube could break down. This is a British guy, by the way, uh, meaning the, uh, the subway could break down and you could die. And even if you do end up getting the full three hours precisely in line with your expectations, you won't know this for sure until the point at which those hours have passed into history. You only ever get to feel certain about the future once it's already turned into the past. Okay, so so the idea is that you don't, we use the phrase, we have time, but you never, you never actually have it, right? You are, you anticipate it, you live through it, and you have had time, like at the end of the three hours, you can look back and say, oh, I had those three hours, but you can, it's never firmly in your possession, okay? So um, set that aside for one moment. Um, I want to actually talk about a Pasuk that, um, that... <laughs> okay, let me think where to begin. Okay, so I, it's possible I'm thinking about this because it's this week's Parsha in Vayera. Uh, it's possible that I'm thinking about it because the Rambam starts off every book he's ever written with this Pasuk. Uh, and, uh, 
And it's possible that um, that I'm thinking about it for other reasons that I'm unaware of. The Pasuk is in Breshis Chaf Aleph Lamates, Genesis 21-39. That says, it's talking about Avraham, about Abraham. So Avraham planted a well in Beersheba, and he called there in the name of Hashem, God of Olam, Kel Olam, God of uh, of Olam. So I think if you if you did a, a, a informal poll, you ask most Jews, how would you translate Kel Olam? Most people would say God of the world, right? Um, because that's how we're used to using the word Olam. Bruchata Hashem Elokinu Melacha Olam. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, uh, King of the Universe, is our King of uh, King of the Universe, King of the World, right? But that's not what the word olam means here. Okay, Ibn Ezra gives a, uh, who is, you know, as as we know, uh, a word guy. Uh, he gives uh, a, a key to interpreting the word olam in Tanakh. He says, Umilas, this is in Ibn Ezra, oh, sorry, let me back up. This is, uh, uh, there's a puzzle in Kohalas 3.11, which is very difficult to translate, which says, Es hakol asa yatheb ito. Uh, he, he, God, made everything beautiful in its time. Gam es ha'olam nasan blibam, and he also placed ha'olam into their hearts, into people's hearts. Mibli asher ha'adam es asher asa So that man will not find the work or the, the act or the deed that God has done from beginning to end. Okay, very confusing pasuk. Okay, so there on Koalas 3.7, on Ecclesiastes uh, 3.7, uh, sorry, not 3.7, 3.11, Ibn Ezra comments. He says, "Umilas olam mikra lo kiim alzman The word olam in all of Tanakh and all of Scripture, we we only ever find that it means time and eternity. olam Hashem, like it says in Yeshayahu Mem Chafches, Isaiah forty twenty eight, uh, the eternal God Hashem. Kumo eloke netzach, it means the God of eternity. O eloke kedem, or in Devarim Lama Gimel Chavzain, in Deuteronomy 33, 27, uh, the, the God of, uh, of, uh, of eternity. Okay, uh, same thing a few, uh, in, the, in the same Pasuk, unless this is misquoting it. Okay, so now, so, so he's saying the word olam in rabbinic Hebrew means world, but in, in uh, scriptural Hebrew, in Tanakh, it always means eternity. Okay, and then he explains the Pasuk and Kohelis. What does it mean that God placed Olam in the hearts of people so that they will not find the work of God from the beginning to end? So Ibn Ezra explains, The idea of God uh, also placed the, the Olam in their hearts. That mankind busies themselves, people busy themselves as though they will live forever. And because of their busyness, they will not understand or contemplate the work of God from beginning to end. So that's exactly the problem that that Oliver Berkman wrote his book about. And that's exactly the same problem that Marcus Aurelius spoke about, namely, that we feel like we are going to live forever. This is the immortality fantasy, which is a sub uh, uh, which is a component of the the God fantasy, the feeling that we are God. And so we feel like we're going to live forever, and therefore we uh, we we end up saying, "Oh, I'll do this later. I'll push things off," like we talked about in the last episode, and uh, and that is really the greatest obstacle to uh, comprehending, you know, to using. Uh, the time that we've been given for our, our purpose, which is to seek knowledge, uh, that's contemplating the work of God from beginning to end. Okay, so so that's that's the pasuk in the Kohelis, that God placed human beings with this, uh, made human beings with this this uh, feeling like they live forever, and this is a cause of a lot of procrastination. 
Uh, but let's go back to the Rambam now. Okay, so the Rambam uh, uh, is, is saying that um, that uh, that Avram called in the name of Hashem Kel Olam. Now we can understand that properly, which is not God of the world, but Avram called in the name of Hashem, God of eternity. Okay, so the Rambam ha- uh, deals with this in many places. Um, in the Mordevuchim, uh, the first place is in uh, uh, section two, chapter thirteen, uh, which I'll read a little while. Uh, just to set the stage for another excerpt from Berkman that I'm going to read. So the Ramam says, um, he says, uh, he's talking about the opinions about the origin of the universe. So he says, the first opinion, which is the opinion of all who believe in the law of Moses, our master, peace be upon him, is that the world as a whole, I mean to say every existent other than God, may he be exalted, was brought into existence by God after having been purely and absolutely non-existent. And that God, may he be exalted, had existed alone and nothing else, neither an angel nor a sphere nor what subsists within the sphere. Afterwards, through his will and his volition, he brought into existence out of nothing all the beings as they are, time itself being one of the created things. Okay, so that's that's what the Rama was focusing on in this paragraph, that time itself is a creation. Okay, now we have to pause and realize how radical an idea this is, even until Einstein, from what I understand in my limited knowledge of the history of science, that time was viewed as not a created phenomenon, but like, for lack of a better term, like the backdrop against which all phenomenon, phenomena uh, exist. You know, people believe that the universe was eternal and that time, things exist in time, uh, but, but, you know, but the time itself is not a creation. So the Ramam says, Ramam goes on to explain how time is a creation. He says, for time is consequent upon motion and motion is an accidental quality in what is moved. Furthermore, what is moved, that is upon the motion of which time is consequent, is itself created in time and came to be after not having been. Accordingly, Accordingly, one's saying that God was before he created the world, where the word was is indicative of time, and similarly all the thoughts that are carried along in the mind regarding the infinite duration of his existence, of God's existence before the creation of the world, are all of them due to a supposition regarding time or to an imagining of time and not due to the true reality of time. For time is indubitably an accident, an accidental quality. According to us, it is one of the created accidents as are blackness and whiteness. And though it does not belong to the species of quality, it is nevertheless generally stated an accidental quality necessarily following upon motion, as is made clear to whoever has understood the discourse of Aristotle on the elucidation of time and on the true reality of its existence. And then the Raman goes on to describe this more in the, to talk about this more in this chapter and other chapters. So l- l- let me just distill this because that was a lot more than we needed. Ramos' point is that time is consequent upon time is 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 consequent upon motion, and motion is consequent upon matter, and therefore. Time is an accidental property of, uh, of 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 physical things, just like blackness and whiteness. And so, just like you, you can't have you you can have whiteness or blackness as a feature of a thing. There's no abstract existence in the physical universe of blackness uh, uh, or whiteness. Um, yeah, don't say dark matter. That's something different, which I also don't understand. But uh, uh, so too, time does not have its own independent existence. It's a, it's a function of uh, of matter. Uh, and again, based on my limited knowledge of physics. Something about Einstein's theory of space, of uh, relativity and space-time uh, brought this concept from uh, medieval abstraction into something that physics uh, did accept. Again, that's not my area of expertise. I'm just saying uh, for further research, uh, for those who know stuff like that, then you can look into that. Okay, but why do we care about this for our purposes? So going back to the Pasuk that uh, that Avram called in the name of Hashem Kel Olam, the, the God of eternity. So actually, Sforno, in his commentary, explains this very well. He says... Um, that he called in the name of Hashem, God of eternity. Vikara, Sforno says, Vikara Avraham called and in, taught 
the masses, that that he, exalted as he, is the God of time and its originator, its, its, its creator. And this is in contrast to the, the, the view of the, the uh, non-Jewish sages, new and old. Okay, so that was what Avraham was doing. He was proclaiming Hashem as the God of time. Okay, now uh, I encourage you to look into uh, into that on its own. Like, what was the idea of Avraham uh, teaching this specific idea about God? Why that specific moment? We'll go into this just a little bit at the end. But for our purposes, I, I, I uh, as the title of the episode uh, alludes to, I was thinking, you know, Marcus Aurelius's point and Berkman's point is that we don't have time. Time is not something we can have, okay? Who's the only one who has time? God, okay? God is outside of time, but he has time because he created it. And and this is the idea that Avraham proclaimed, is that God, Hashem is the God of, of, of time, which means that he is not subject to it, okay? And I, I think that f- regardless of what Avraham meant by that, there is a, a, a rhetorically powerful um, uh, point that's made in, 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 in juxtaposing these two ideas that, that, that you think you have time, well, the only being who has time is God. So if you think you have time and you give into this immortality fantasy that I can live forever, that is thinking that you are God. You know, it is a completely delusional belief that I somehow have time. You know, the only, like, like we just, uh, uh read that, Time is not yours. You, you can anticipate getting time, but time is never actually yours until you've already like used it. So, so the thought. So again, to, to me, the, the the revolutionary idea here is that that only God has time. You don't have time. If you think you have time, you think you're God. <laughs> okay. And I want to read uh, from elsewhere in Berkman's book because he expands on this even more using another philosopher who I don't really know, Heidegger. So this is on earlier in the book on page fifty nine. Okay. So he says. Uh, Berkman says, having focused our attention on this ground level issue of being, okay, existence itself, Heidegger next turns to humans specifically and to our particular kind of being. What does it mean for a human to be? His answer is that our being is totally, utterly bound up with our finite time. So bound up, in fact, that the two are synonymous. To be for a human is above all to exist temporally in the stretch between birth and death, certain that the end will come, yet unable to know when. We tend to speak about our having a limited amount of time, but it might make more sense from Heidegger's strange perspective to say that we are a limited amount of time. That's how completely our limited time defines us. Every moment of human existence is completely shot through with the fact of what Heidegger calls our finitude. Our limited time isn't just one among various things we have to cope with. Rather, it's the thing that defines us as humans before we start coping with anything at all. Before I can ask a single question about what I should do with my time, I find myself already thrown into time, into this particular moment, with my particular life story, which has made me into who I am and which I can never get out of out from under. Looking ahead to the future, I find myself equally constrained by my finitude. I'm being born forward born, B-O-R-N-E, forward on the river of time with no possibility of stepping out of the flow, onward towards my inevitable death, which, to make matters more, even more ticklish, could arrive at any moment. Okay, and, and then he goes on to explain how, uh, since you're a being in time who has to make these choices, then that affects the future as well. I'll just read one more paragraph, even though I could easily read on a lot more. He says, in this situation, any decision I make uh, to do anything at all with my time is already radically limited. For one thing, it's limited in a retrospective sense. Because I'm already who I am and where I am, which which determines what possibilities are open to me, 
but it's also radically limited to a for in a forward-looking sense too. Not least because a decision to do any given thing will automatically mean sacrificing an infinite number of potential alternative paths. As I make hundreds of small choices throughout the day, I'm building a life. But at one and the same time, I'm closing off the possibility of countless others forever. Any finite life, even the best one you could possibly imagine, is therefore a matter of ceaselessly waving goodbye to possibility. Okay, and he goes on to talk about that as well. That's that should be another episode. So. So the thing that intrigued me is this notion, only God has time and is above time. We don't have time, but to the contrary, we are time. Time is an accident of matter and is a measure of change. And we are constantly undergoing change and are, it's inescapable for us. You know, we are what we do with our, with our finitude. And, and, and that is a way of, of conceiving of ourselves as time. So so uh, I don't know where I'm going with this other than the fact that, again, that, that central realization that like, oh, you think you have, anytime you catch yourself feeling that like I have infinite time, realize that is just a, uh, it's a God fantasy. Only God has infinite time and, and that's only because he's outside of it. Um, and, uh, and so, and realize what Kohela says that the more you think you have infinite time, the more you're going to push off doing what actually needs to be done and, uh, and neglecting to focus on ironically, the only time which you actually do have, which is the present. Okay. And again, this is not saying that you shouldn't plan for the future. Okay. But it's saying that you should recognize that the only time that is certainly vouchsafed to you is the present, like we talked about in the last episode. I want to conclude with some uh, thoughts from Rav Hirsch. Okay. So if you want to, to find a way to connect this idea, uh, I guess, into the, um, well, okay, uh, let's, just, let's just leave this as Rav Hirsch's idea on its own. Okay. I'm not going to give the context. Uh, I mean, the context is his commentary on the puzzle and Breshis. So this is what he says. He says, the name of God joined to Olam, a name that, as noted above, occurs only twice in Tanakh, has been planted on our lips by our sages more than any other name. We recite it regularly. They instituted this practice after the term Olam had also taken on the meaning of world, i.e. the most concrete and actual reality. Through the two meanings of this term, our sages have given us an invaluable insight. So he's going to now explain um, how, what the insight is if you think of Olam as eternity, and then how you connect this to the idea of world. So he writes like this, people commonly cope with distress by turning their thoughts to the future. By looking to the future, they seek solace for a disconsolate present. Okay. And that's exactly what Oliver Berkman's book is about. He, he, his theory is that the reason why we're always checking social media and planning for the future and being antsy is because we are uh, we we are uncomfortable and and uh, with the, with the present and there are things that we want to avoid and uh, thinking about the future and going to social media is the uh, is the easiest way to do that. So Hirsch goes on. So let me read that again. People commonly cope with distress by turning their thoughts to the future. By looking to the future, they seek solace for a disconsolate present. Our sages did the opposite. Just when we had become a laughingstock to all people, the peoples of the world, our sages taught us to look upon every moment of the present as part of the future. They taught us to look upon thunder and lightning, upon blossoms, food, and tidings, upon everything that happens to us and all that we experience in the present as part of eternity, and to recognize God as Melech Olam, who directs the hidden future as it gradually unfolds in the course of time. For every moment truly lived is of the essence of that eternity which we all will ultimately share and can attain even in this life if we are what we ought to be. So pause here for a second. So he's saying by 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 creating all these brachos and making the phrase olam into the most commonly recited phrase in connection to God, he's saying that brachos really pull us out of this idea of only thinking about the future and then focusing on the present, realizing that by 
acknowledging these ideas, we become more in tune with the world that God created and our knowledge of God. And that really does build our future. In other words, you know, when you, you are, are going by and you, uh, I don't know, you're going to eat a food, uh, instead of just anticipating the food that you're going to eat and then eating it, you're pausing and focusing on the present and recognizing God's role in the production of this food. And then that builds your future going forward. Same thing with, uh, you know, with the uh, uh, lightning and thunder that instead of, um, of like just hearing it and then moving on, you are, are uh, seizing the moment and focusing on the present that God is outside of, you know, that, that this temporal phenomenon comes from a being who's outside of time. And by, by growing, developing that knowledge seeking part of you, which will have eternal existence, you can partake of that eternity even now. Okay. Rehearse goes on. An even deeper truth may lie here. It appears that in Tanakh, the term olam refers not only to the hidden past and future, but generally to all that is hidden from our eyes and invisible to us. For it would be presumptuous to say that only the past and future are hidden from us. Even the most actual present is fundamentally and truly an olam. Because uh, remember, you remember, ayin lamed mem means hidden. Okay, so that's what, that, that's what he's saying. So even uh, the most actual present is fundamentally and truly an olam, a hidden thing. All actuality is rooted in the nelam, in the hidden, which alone represents the highest reality. Forms and shapes change, but the dynamic force, the hidden that lies at the base of everything revealed, the abstract, the nelam, that is what endures forever. The only real thing on which one can rely. Then he interprets our passage in Kohelis. As it says in Kohelis, and I'll read you his translation, God has arranged all things beautifully in relation to one another, but he has also put in man's heart a touch of the hidden, of the transcendent, without which man will never fathom even the least of the work that God has made. So, whereas Ibn Ezra translates it as God placed eternity in our hearts, Rav Hirsch is translating it as God placed the the hidden or the transcendent in our hearts, which means that we, we sense that all these ever-changing temporal phenomena that are around us, you know, what Marcus really refers to as like the river of existence that's constantly changing— Underlying that there is a stable reality, which is hidden because we only perceive it through the changing reality. And that is uh, that intuition and the ability to perceive that is what we've been granted. Last paragraph. The foregoing idea could be what caused the association of the concept world with the term olam. For the real world is truly an olam, a hidden thing. Our sages wish to train us to look beyond every natural phenomenon, beyond its revealed aspect to the under, its underlying hidden aspect, to look to God, Melech Olam, who directs and controls all the hidden forces. Everything, all that surrounds us in this world of riddles is part of his kingdom. He is also Elokeinu, to whom we, our powers, lives, and destinies belong. We are to devote ourselves to him with all our energies to do his will and to increase his glory for blessing. Baruch. Yeah, so that is uh, what he uh, wants to say is the um, the idea that Avram was teaching people, that uh, the God of Olam, the God of eternity, the God of the world, and the God of hidden things, um, that, that uh, whereas I guess the uh, idolatrous cultures and uh, societies take the phenomena that they perceive to be the fundamental realities, you know, these are the gods, um, then, uh, you know, the sun is a god, the moon is a god, uh, and then, uh, then you know, Judaism says that there is an invisible, non-physical, hidden god behind, uh, behind all things, uh, and uh, that is the god who exists eternally, who's the god of time, and who is the one who is the director of all uh, hidden things in the entire world. Yeah, so that was my Stoju meditation on the phrase B'Shem Hashem Kel Olam. And uh, I'm sure there's more ideas here. I realize that not all these ideas are fully fleshed out. Or or if you ask me what is what was your point, I might have to think about that a little bit. Maybe there are several points. Uh, but I did want to share that, uh, this line of thinking, uh, at the very beginning of part of the week of, well, not the very beginning, <laughs> toward the beginning of the week of Parsha's Vayera, uh, because it is in this week's Parsha. Okay, um, 
thank you. I guess that's it for today. Uh, thank you for listening. If you've gained from what you've learned here, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash rabbishnaywise. Alternatively, if you'd like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneewise Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at Matt-Schneewise, and my Zelle and PayPal are matchschneewise at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you'd like to sponsor a day's or a week's worth of content, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnaywise at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening, thank you to my readers for reading, and thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.